I imagine you're excited if you haven't read the title of the sermon today. Everyone else is looking down like, oh no, what's going on? I'll take the fact that you're still here as that you probably didn't read the title of the sermon before you got in. So we're going to talk about everyone's most delightful topic, and that is tithing. And so we're, we're not just picking it out of the blue. We are studying the book of Malachi, and we are near the end. Malachi is not a very long book. Old Testament prophet concludes the Old Testament, leads us up to this expectation of the coming one that will come, of course, in Matthew, a couple pages over in your Bible. And we reach a section which is a very classic text. If you know any of the passages from Malachi, this is probably the passage that you know. So we're going to answer a very simple question today with a very complicated answer. But it'll still be a direct answer when we're done, if that makes sense to you. So here's the question that we're going to answer is, do Christians in the New Testament still tithe? And so before I just give you an answer, we're going to have to unpack three different theological concepts to make sense of this. So I hope you will find this interesting in spite of the topic and maybe in spite of the conclusion. So we are going to dive in. Go ahead and grab your Bible. Open to Malachi chapter 3. In a moment, we'll be picking up in chapter 6, I'm sorry, in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3. So we're going to get to talk about some interesting doctrine this morning, a doctrine of God. Then we're going to talk about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And only then can we actually answer the question about whether or not Christians tithe today. Everybody with me? So doctrine of God, relationship between the two Testaments, then tithing specifically. So everybody on on page with this? So let's dive in. So what we're going to do first is just read um, the very first statement of this paragraph, and I'm going to lock that idea down, and then we can move on from there. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord. Now, Lord here is all caps. Do you see that in your Bible? Big L, then smaller letters, but still capital letters, O-R-D. What does that tell us in our English Bibles? That is Yahweh. This is God's covenant name. I am, and so technically there's no the, I am Yahweh, for I, Yahweh, do not change. So this isn't the generic name for God. The Elohim, or El, we see commonly throughout the Old Testament. This is God's personal name, the name of Revelation, the name of the fathers, the patriarchs. This is Yahweh. He says, I do not change. So how often does God change? Never. That's the point. If you care about big fancy terms, this is the doctrine of both um, immutability and simplicity. They kind of overlap in this category. God is the same all the time. We get the exact same statement with different words in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, but it's about Jesus rather than Yahweh, though if we've studied our doctrine of the Trinity, are they different gods? Are they both the same kind of God? No. They're the same God. Trick question. Okay, so they're the exact same God, and the New Testament says Jesus Christ is the same when? Today, yesterday, and forever. So at what point in that chronology does Jesus change? Well, did Jesus change when he came to earth? No, even there he did not change. The divinity of God has never altered in any sense. Think about it. Can God 
get better at being God. No, he, he can just be God. He can't be pretty good at being God and then get better at being God later. Can God be worthy of more worship today than he was worthy of yesterday? No, by definition, God does not change. He is perfectly consistent. Anything in progression used to be small, or we could say used to not be. God cannot be in progression. He cannot be getting greater. He cannot be getting smaller. God is God, and he never changes. There's no variation, no shadow, no alteration in his character. If he is wrathful today, what will he be tomorrow? Wrathful. If he is loving today, what will he be tomorrow? Loving. God's character, God's being, who he is, never alters in any sense. Now, when we talk about this doctrine, the first thing people want to do is throw up two particular passages in the Old Testament that say God changed his mind. Well, does God ever change his mind? The answer is no, not in the way we do. So the first passage is in 1 Samuel. It says God changed his mind. And then one paragraph later, Samuel clarifies, well, but God doesn't change his mind like we do. We mean something different. We mean God acts one way if you're sinning, and another way if you're repentant. Well, is God consistent in those responses? He does not change. You can experience a change, but really what's happened is you have changed. And so you see a different response from God in that change. The other story is in Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, right? Four chapters, very short book. It's also one of the small books in the Old Testament. I love this story. Jonah, of course, is trying to run away from this God named Yahweh because if he can get away from Yahweh, then maybe Yahweh can't hurt him. Then he gets out to the sea. Everything goes wrong, and the, the, the people in the boat say, all right, lots fell to him. Jonah, what's going on? He says, well, you know, I told you I was running from this God named Yahweh. turns out he, he kind of made the land and actually the sea too and, and everything actually. So I can, you can see in the story Jonah working this out. You go, this was a really dumb idea. And furthermore, God appoints a fish and comes swallows Jonah. Jonah finds repentance in the belly of a well. Good place to find repentance. The, the well vomits him out. And then he finally goes to Nineveh. It took a little bit of persuasion. But God told him to go to Nineveh. He ends up in Nineveh. He preaches the gospel in Nineveh. And what did the Ninevites do? Do you remember? They repent. They turn from their sins. And then the Hebrew says God repented too. So they repent, God's response was he repented. Repented of what? What was he going to do to the Ninevites? They're going to destroy their entire nation. Their whole city was going to go up in flames. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they repented. And God repents likewise. As people say, well, see, God changed. Well, you have to not read chapter 4 for that to make sense. You get to chapter 4, we find out Jonah was up on the side of a mountain, and he's watching the city and he's waiting for what? He's, he's got his popcorn. Oh, I cannot wait for God to burn this place down. Of course, we already know because we've read chapter 3. Jonah didn't know what happened after he left. He's just up on the mountain waiting. But we as the reader, we know that that's not coming. There's no destruction pending for Nineveh at that point in history. And then Jonah, how does he respond when he finds out that God's not going to destroy the city? He gets mad. He says, God, I knew you would do that because you're always the same. The point of the story of Jonah is that 
God does not change. That he is always like this. This is his character. This is who he is. Now, this is going to be a fundamental concept coming into Malachi, but let's see how Malachi has applied this concept. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. What did he just say? It's a good thing, guys, that my character is constant. Because if it wasn't, the thing I'm fixing to call out in you would have provoked me to enough anger to wipe you off the planet right now. That's what we mean when we say the word whimsical. Now, when you hear the word whimsical, you think of like fairy tales, you think of children's stuff. In older worldviews, the word whimsical has a theological meaning. The gods of the pagans, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans would all be what we call whimsical. They, have you ever done something on a whim? What's the idea of doing something on a whim? Just, it's in the moment. Whatever you feel, you act on your, feels, your feeling. And so you waver a lot. A very whimsical person then is somebody who's not solid. They're not consistent. They're different every day when they get up. And so to say the God of the Bible is not like the other gods. He's not whimsical. He doesn't just wake up in a bad mood. He doesn't respond to us in inappropriate ways. He's perfectly consistent. He began a work in Israel that will culminate in Christ, and there's no chance that he'll change his mind and stop. There's no chance he'll give up on his plan. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. So, just a quick hypothetical question. Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? How much the same? Exactly the same. So the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same God of the New Testament. People read in the Old Testament and say, God seemed to be wrathful in the Old Testament. He seems to be loving in the New Testament. You haven't read very clearly. There's a lot of wrath in the New Testament technically. There's way more wrath in the New Testament. There's more wrath poured out on Christ in the New Testament than everything combined in the Old Testament. And furthermore, the wrath that's not taken in Christ is poured out on everyone who's left in the book of Revelation. All of God's wrath is poured out in the New Testament. Little pieces, little taste tests are poured out in the Old Testament. God is the same beginning to end. He never changes. Now, with that in mind, let's see what Malachi says next. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So, Israel, in a sense, hasn't changed either. Hasn't changed in what kind of way? You stiff-necked, stupid people. You ever feel that way about yourself? It's like you're doing the same dumb sin over and over again, well, there's a sense, not in the same sense, but they're not changing either. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. See, the covenant God made with Moses through the, to the people of Israel was a very precise covenant. There's a lot of rules, there's a lot of stipulations, and if you want to find that covenant, which books of the Bible do you look in? All of the first five. That whole thing is called... The Torah, which is the Hebrew word for the law. This is the law 
of Moses. Moses penned virtually all of the Torah, and he's written this down. Now, in the end, Moses has delivered all of this law. He's preached to them. He's led them through the wilderness, and he gets to the very end of his life. If you remember, he doesn't get to go into the promised land after the wilderness wanderings. He's, he's going to be killed before he gets to do that. But he's giving some final speeches before he dies and sends Joshua in to lead the people into the promised land. And he summarizes the law like this. He says, guys, I have set before you life and peace, blessing but cursing and death. Choose life. Well, what's he getting at? The law was very clear. If you obey God, he will bless you in this land. If you honor God in the land, God will honor you in the land. If you do the things in those books, God will bless you. If you do not do the things in those books, what do you think God will do? He will curse you. He won't just remove blessing. He will apply cursing. It's not just negative. It's not just privation. It is actual cursing on his people if they do not obey the law. So what's Malachi saying from the Lord? Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Or before that, you've always turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So from Moses to Malachi, we've basically surveyed the bulk of Jewish history. And God's survey of that is there's been a lot more cursing than there has been blessing. Well, Malachi's written after the exile, right? Why were they even in exile in the first place? They had sinned against the Lord over and over and over again. They'd committed idolatry primarily. They'd committed injustice. They'd done all these things, dishonoring the name of the Lord. God had them destroyed, sent in the exile, but he's brought them back. They're allowed to repent. They have this opportunity to serve the Lord faithfully. And here they are with their new temple, their new land, their new wall, their new Jerusalem. And the same sorts of sins are coming back over and over and over again. So let's see the specific sin he's calling out now. But you say, how shall we return? Which is the fancy way of saying, well, what are we supposed to repent of? We're here. We're jumping through the hoops. We're doing the motions. What are we supposed to repent of? What's God say? In your tithes and contributions. Tithes and contributions. So, all right, we need a few minutes. So I hope no food is waiting at the house. We're going to have to unpack what the tithe is in the Old Testament, okay? Y'all ready for this? So we're going to walk through the law and see exactly what the Scriptures are saying about the tithe. So hold Malachi 3. I invite you to turn. These are good Scriptures to know about and to see. First, let's go to Leviticus. It's the one time you'll hear me go to Leviticus. It's not a common book, a lot of law in here, but if we want to talk about Old Testament law, this is exactly where we need to be. Leviticus, we're going to go near the very end, literally almost the very end, to chapter 27, and we're going to pick up in verse 30. I want you to see how the tithe works. Now, a lot of people think that in the Old Testament, God required people to give 10% of their increase. That's not the tithe. That's not what, it's close, that's almost what the tithe is, but there's a very significant difference which explains God's lingo in Malachi. So I want you to see how this works. Leviticus 27, verse 30. 
every tithe of the land. Now, literally, that's every tenth of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees. So whether it's an apple tree and you pick 100 apples off of it, a tithe of it would be how many apples? Ten apples. If you're growing wheat and you have 100 bushels of wheat when you finish harvesting, how many bushels are we talking about? Ten. You get the idea. What's he say about these? It is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Now, God's not saying you have to give that to him. He's saying it's his. You see the difference in the wording? It's not saying you ought to give 10%. No, he's saying I have claimed ownership of that 10%. It belongs to me. Furthermore, it works like this. If you have sheep and your sheep give birth to 10 lambs, how many of those lambs belong to God? One, but it is God's lamb. You don't get to pick which of the one you give to the Lord. Technically, you give which one, do you know? The, the tenth. The tenth one. And it's going to tell us, let's just keep going. You see, if a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, I'll explain that in a second, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitution. So the tenth one, what if it's lame? In this case, it doesn't matter. It's the tenth one. What if it's the best one you have, but it's the tenth one? It's God's. There's no differentiation. This isn't the Passover lamb. This isn't a sin offering. This is just God saying every tenth one belongs to me. Every tenth apple belongs to me. Every tenth bushel of grain, that already belongs to me. So if you don't give it, it's not that you haven't given. What have you done? You have robbed. You have stolen God's property. Now what if you want to keep that treasured lamb that was born? That tenth lamb is, and this is the best one. This is a perfect specimen. That's the one I want to breed with. You can keep it, but you have to buy it from God. And you have to add a fifth, which is how much percent? 20% markup if you want to keep that thing. If you want that lamb, that's fine. Now, if you substitute it, and you know what? Let's just say they were almost born at the same time. Let's make this one the 10th, and I'll keep that one. God says, now they both belong to me. Because the first, the actual 10th already belonged to me. And then when you said you were going to give the other one, your word made it belong to me. So now they both belong to me, and if you want either of them, you've got to redeem them because they're mine now. See how the tithe is working? So this includes any offspring, any increase whatsoever. What if your, your garden herbs have increased some? How much of it does God own? 10%. It's already his. You don't get to keep it. So all of no, no matter what you do, this is holy to the Lord. In fact, on the substitution thing, if you do that, you don't even get to redeem it anymore if you follow through the rest of that passage. That's the base concept for the tithe. Every tenth thing already belongs to God. So the question next would be, well, what are we supposed to do with it since it belongs to God? Do, do we sacrifice it? Do we kill it? Do we burn it? What do we do? How does God take literal ownership of this tithe of everything that we have. Well, let's fast forward in the law 
we'll see some specifics about how we use this tenth. And let's go to Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18. So as you're turning there, Numbers chapter 18, we'll pick up in verse 21. Do you remember who the Levites are in the Old Testament? So there were supposed to be 12 tribes of Israel. One of the tribes, when God passed over the firstborn in the Passover, in the tenth plague of Israel, he claimed, rather than killing a firstborn, he claimed one of the tribes as his firstborn, even though it wasn't the firstborn in the lineage. And what tribe was that? It was Levi. And Levi was set apart, given no land inheritance in Israel, and made to serve the priests. Now, sometimes the word Levite and priest is used interchangeably. Technically, that's not correct, because the Levites would be the big circle, and then the priests are the little circle inside of that circle, descendants of Aaron, who is a Levite. But you had to be a descendant of Aaron to be a priest, but to be a Levite, you were just a descendant of Levi. Big circle. You get no land inheritance. And you're scattered throughout Israel. Obviously, a lot of them would end up in Jerusalem. So this is what God is going to do with the tithe that he claims. Verse 21, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, that their service for, for their service in the tent of meeting. You see what's going on? What's the tithe for in Israel? It pays the Levites. That's how they live. They don't have land. What does that mean they can't do in an agrarian society? Because they can't farm. Right? They don't have the land to farm on. The people of Israel paid their salary, paid their livelihood. That's what's going on. Now, it's more complicated. Fast forward to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to look at verse... Well, let's start in verse 10, but we'll head into verse 11. So how is it, or where is it that we take this offering? This is what's going on. So, but when you go over the Jordan, so remember, Moses is giving them the law while they're wandering in the wilderness. So there's a lot of, when you get there, this is how it will work. Does that make sense? Jerusalem is where the temple will be built, hasn't been built yet. In fact, Jerusalem is not an Israelite city yet, but he says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that, you're, that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, and the contributions that you present. All right, so where did they take the tithe once they were in the land? To Jerusalem. Now, we don't know Jerusalem yet because that hasn't been declared, but we fast forward in history. Jerusalem is where that place becomes. So they were to take all of their tithe to Jerusalem. That was the goal. Now, just go over two more chapters to verse 14, and let's, there's a whole section on tithes here. See what he says in verse 22. And you shall tithe of all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose, that is Jerusalem, to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain. Wait, wait, wait. What just happened? You take the tithe to Jerusalem, and what do you do with it? You eat it. You see what? Uh, this is in the text. This isn't me. This is right there in the text. You shall eat the tithe of your grain 
of your wine, of your oil, of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So you take your tithe, you go to Jerusalem, and you eat it. Well, what if you're super rich and you live down in Beersheba, you know, or up in Dan, and it's really hard for you to get there. What do you do? All right. And if the way is too long so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. But then do you give them the money? No. You spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen, sheep, wine, Strong drink, that's interesting. Whatever your appetite craves, that's also interesting. And then what do you do? You shall eat there before the Lord, your God, and rejoice, you and your household. So who eats the tithe? You do. But who did we say the tithe was for? For But God, it's, it's his, but who does he use it for? The Levites. So see the next verse. And you shall not neglect the Levite, who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now, who do you think orchestrates the sacrifice, orchestrates the meal, puts everything together when you get to Jerusalem and set this up? The Levites do. So, it's your offering. You've given this 10%. You get to participate in the eating of it. But they do too. So, it's not yours. It's the Lord's. But this is what he has commanded you to do with it. You go and you honor the Lord. You worship his name together. Then, interesting, verse 28, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. So every third year, where do you take the tithe? Not to Jerusalem. You take it to someplace in your town. Why? All right, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work your hands that you do. So what's the tithe for in that, that case? Well, the Levites who live near you, you're taking care of them. You're also taking care of the sojourner. They had a lot of Bedouin tribe sort of activity, and that's where they came from. They were to honor people in that same scenario. They took care of the fatherless, which is, what would we say in English? Orphan. And the widow, they were to take care of these people with the tithe. So everybody follow what's happening so far. So God claims direct ownership. He designates it for the Levites to do in Jerusalem, but you get to eat it and enjoy it before the Lord. But every third year, you keep it local so it can take care of the helpless people near you, right? That's the tithe in the Old Testament. So when God says, you have robbed me, so let's go back to Malachi. I know it's already like five after. I'm like halfway through. Y'all just bear with me. All right, we've got the Old Testament portion. Okay, so he said, you, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So what's going wrong? If they don't tithe, not only are they directly robbing God and dishonoring his name, that's first and foremost, that's the vertical sin, but there's a horizontal sin connected directly to it. And what's happening? What's not happening in Jerusalem if they're not tithing? 
They're not helping the Levites. The entire ministry system of the temple is not funded if they don't tithe. Furthermore, that's how the priests get their living. That's how the Levites get their living. That's how the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner are taken care of. Everyone is being neglected if you do not tithe. And what's God's response if they didn't tithe? Cursing. I will curse you if you do not tithe. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Well, is this a new idea? Or is this what the law always told them to do? You honor me, I will bless you. You dishonor me, I will curse you. It says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So the application there is very straightforward. But Malachi is writing to people who still have Levites to take care of, who still have a temple to fund, who still have the Old Testament system to operate. So here's the question. How do we apply that to the New Testament? So I already said we were going to go through three things. Technically, we're starting the second. I apologize. So the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. First blank, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not the same, okay? They're not the same. They are related. Do we use the Old Testament? Absolutely we do. What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, picking up in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Old Testament pointed to Christ. Let's go ahead and fill in that next blank. So the law of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Christ. So technically, we're not under the Old Covenant. We're not under the law of the Old Covenant, technically. But if I started listing out the Ten Commandments, the first one, no other gods before me. Well, does that still apply in the New Testament? Well, clearly. No graven image? Still clearly applies to uh, Honor the Lord's name. Remember, keep it holy. Yeah. All right, we could debate the Sabbath one. We'll do that. That's another day. We won't go there right now. But uh, adultery, the same. Stealing, the same. Coveting, bearing false witness, honor your father and mother. I mean, nine of them are quoted in the New Testament. So do we still do those? Absolutely we do. But can't we point to lots of laws in the Old Testament that we we don't do anymore? I mean, can we eat bacon? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Some, yeah, I mean, wow, y'all were excited about that. I am too, though, okay? Yes, yeah, so that's directly stated in the New Testament. Here's why there's things in the Old Testament we still directly do and things we don't do. So, so we don't have time to get into the full framework here. I'd love to get into 1689 federalism, and I just don't have time. But here's the idea. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament ultimately said, be like 
Jesus. Think about how Jesus works in the Sermon on the Mount. Just after he said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, he starts quoting some Old Testament rules. One, don't murder. He's not saying that rule's wrong, but what's he say instead? It's not just don't murder, it's what? Don't hate. It's not just don't commit adultery, it's if you look at lust, with lust you've already committed adultery. Don't even think it. It's not just telling us what to do and what to act like, it's telling us who to be. That's why we use the Old Testament. It reveals the character of Christ. Now, it's a progression. Not everything in the Old Testament ties directly in the same way everything else does, whereas in the New Testament, everything is directly tied to the person and character of Christ. The Old Testament points towards, it reveals the coming covenant. The New Testament is the covenant of grace. It is this work. So we're perfectly under the New Testament, and we're basically under, as it points to and is fulfilled in the New Testament, we're under the Old Testament. So do we tithe directly in the New Testament? The answer is no. But do we honor and look for how these Old Testament commandments work in the New Testament era? Of course we do. We don't literally tithe because that would mean we would take our offering to Jerusalem and fund the Levites, fund the priesthood. But do you think we can apply that in any way? What's the principle going from the Old to the New Testament? The principle absolutely remains, or we leave off. So we are not under the Old Testament directly, but we are bound to the character of Christ. Next point. The setting for the Old Testament tithe has passed away. The principle of the tithe remains. All right, let's just think about that. Go to... 1 Corinthians, I know we're jumping all over the place, I just want this to be absolutely clear to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is dealing with whether or not ministers should get paid. That's the, the question at hand, because he didn't take a salary everywhere he went, and so the question could be, well, if Paul didn't, does that mean we're not supposed to do it that way? That's not at all what he's saying. So we're going to start 1 Corinthians nine thirteen. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple. What's he talking about? That's the Old Testament tithe, directly. That's how that works. And those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Now see verse 14. In the same way. What do you think he means by same way? I think he means in the same way. In the same way that 10% funded the ministry in the Old Testament in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So is there a connection between the Old Testament tithe and the New Testament giving? Directly, yes. Do we literally tithe in the Old Testament way? No, we do not. But is the principle fundamentally identical? Yes. Yes, it is. Right there. We ought to set aside a portion of our income for the work of ministry. So the question comes up, how much? I don't think the New Testament directly answers that question. But I don't think there's any sense we would fathom where it would be less than what happened in the Old Testament. So I want to give you three paradigms for asking this question. How much should you give? Now, we could do a whole series on these three, so I'm going to go really quick just to give you the idea. You've, you've heard some of these sayings before. So some people would say, give till it hurts. All right, so what's the, what's the idea behind giving till it hurts? You remember the story of the rich young ruler? 
Right, what did God tell, what did Jesus tell that guy to do? To give it all and come follow me, then he went away sad. Now, we don't know the rest of the story. Presumably, he went away sad because he didn't want to do that. Why did he not want to do that? What was money to him? It's an idol. Anything that's an idol in your life, if you attack it, it hurts. And so if money is an idol in you, you need to give till that idol dies. Suffocate that idol with your giving. Give till it hurts. If that is a temptation for you, kill it by giving. Give till it hurts. That's just one paradigm. Another paradigm is give till it helps. Give till it helps. We see a lot of this in the New Testament. We see Paul asking for an offering to give relief to the saints in Jerusalem. We see churches collecting offerings to give him money so that he can keep doing ministry, to take care of him in prison, to take care of him on the mission field because he's not taking an income from a church he's planting today. They'll end up funding his ministry 20 years later when he's planting a church somewhere else. Give in a way that it's helpful, that it's fruitful. Do you see needs in the church? Meet them. In the early church, we get two descriptions very, on, very early on in Acts of how the church related to one another. One in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Then again in chapter um, 4, you see both scenarios, the same basic principle. All the believers were contributing of their income to make sure no one in the body had need. It's clear in the chapter 4, in Acts 4, where they started selling their possessions and selling their property, laying it down at the apostles' feet, and then it would be distributed out both for ministry and for needs, taking care of things going on in the church. If you see a need, if you see the church struggling, if you see someone struggling, by all means, give till it helps. It's a good paradigm to operate under. But I want to give you another paradigm. I want to give you a paradigm that's ultimately greater than both of those two. Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount that it's perfectly okay to store up treasure. But there's a caveat. Where is it okay to store up treasure? In heaven. Give so that it lasts. I'm going to close with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is dealing with disunity in the church because some people like him. Some people like Apollo. Some people like Peter. They're dividing in the church, and Paul's just trying to say, hey, listen, we all contribute something. Everyone, he's going to end up talking about spiritual gifts, how we all contribute something. So this is what he's defending himself. This is what he says. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. Well, you're part of that too. All of us need to take care how we build, how we work, in the kingdom that is coming. Let no one, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. And what's that foundation? That is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, whatever it is, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, capital D, day, what's that a reference to? The return, ultimately the judgment, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. It's incredible. 
that God has told us that we can contribute in such a way that it survives on the other side. So, how much do you want to give? How much should you give? I would say out of now and later, only one of those is eternal. And I would much rather store up my treasure on the other side. So use your resources. That may mean you give. It may mean you double tithe. It may mean you leverage what you have like Aquila and Priscilla did. It may be that you use your home like many people in the New Testament use their homes for churches. It may be that you use your income, use your leverage, use your position, use your place in society. Use everything for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And then great will be your reward. It's like this. I can go eat a zucchini that I bought from the store. I can grill it up with some soy sauce, put it on my cast iron skillet. Maybe instead of soy sauce, I use like five, six, I don't know, a couple dozen tablespoons of butter. You know how that works. And it'll be delicious, right? Well, if you like zucchini. I will think it will be delicious. But I could grow a zucchini in my backyard, do everything the same way, and I'm going to enjoy that zucchini infinitely more. Right? Why? Because I contributed to it. That is God's grace to you. You're going to get to enjoy heaven no matter how you get there. But your delight in heaven will be unique to what you contributed getting there. So guys, let's not worry about how much to tithe. Let's worry about leveraging everything we have and everything we are the kingdom of heaven. And by all means, in the middle of that, the principle is there. Let's tithe.